Wow, we were led by a spectacular anthem by our choir that captured our hearts, that calmed our minds from all the things that are going on in our lives as we sang of the great King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We worshiped together in songs that exalted your Son and rang out truth to us and reminded us that there is going to be a great ingathering of your people someday, and we will, with one voice, sing your praises, Lord. We've given to you, Lord. You are worthy of our finances. In fact, all that we have are from you. And so we've given to you, Lord. We give back a portion to you. You deserve these things, Lord. In fact, I know many of us would want to give more. We thank you for the missions, Lord. We, we've, you've allowed us to do, be involved with what you are doing around the world. And we, we thank you that you include us in that. You let us, let us partake and, and come along with you in the sharing of the gospel and even digging of a well for clean water that gives an opportunity for the gospel. And now, Lord, our goal is to speak your word, to teach it, to preach it, to hear it, to apply it, to live it. Lord, we want that to penetrate our hearts and our minds, and we ask today that you would do that for us, Lord. Father, we know that your word has been abused on this earth. It's been taken out of context. Emotionalism and experientialism has, has gone rampant in this country, and yet we have a passage that teaches us how to rightly handle the word, how to handle gifts, how to handle the role of the Spirit, and Lord, so we ask that you would help us today. We want to be faithful to your word. We want to be faithful to the Godhead as you care for us and give us gifts to worship you and to love one another. And so, Lord, minister to us through the day. Father, I do pray for those who can't be here. We have many who are going through treatments, those who are sick, those who are bedridden. Many are watching, Lord, and we love them, and we want them to know we love them. But, Lord, our love pales in comparison to your love for them. You love them. You know what they're going through. You know every cell in their body. And so we ask that you would comfort them. Be with their caretakers that watch over them. Give them comfort and strength, Lord, to do that job well. And, Lord, finally, we ask that you be with our missionaries, not just in the Congo, but around the world, Spain and Philippines, here in America, other places and South America, Lord, help them, give them strength. Many of them are preaching the gospel today. Give them favor in their areas for the gospel to go forward. Lord, we ask all this in your glorious name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in a study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we have currently been easing our way verse by verse into chapter 12. And I think this is very important. We want to get a foothold and an understanding what true biblical spirituality is. And that's what Paul's after. There's a lack of spirituality in the Corinthians. They were self-centered. And because they're a lack of biblical spiritual people, guess what they did with the gifts? They abused them. And there was problems there. They didn't understand there was a gifting of the Spirit. So the abuse of the gifts came, and this took place in this church in Corinth that Paul loved. Now, the Corinthians had somehow separated gifts from from spirituality, from true spirituality. They were wanting to function with their gifts apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, and that always causes problems. 
In fact, we realized the last few weeks here before the hurricane that they were leaning on their own natural abilities and not on what the Spirit does. And so there was problems. There was fleshly desires. They were quenching the work of the Spirit. And what was the result of it was there was a destruction of the unity within the church. And Paul's been dealing with this throughout the context. We see it most in factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. Factions were dividing, and they had fallen in love with worldly wisdom. But Paul's desire for this church is to understand true spirituality. What does it mean to be a spiritual person? The world uses that term. They'll say, oh, aren't you such a spiritual person? They have no clue what the term means. Spiritual person is a person who is gripped by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is always spotlighting the Word of God in Christ in our hearts. That's the spiritual person. And so that's what Paul's after. And so he's responding to questions throughout this letter. And here he has moved from chapter 11 forward into responding to worship. What does it mean to worship? They have centered all that around their natural gifts. And Paul knew that it was the Holy Spirit that was the giver of true spiritual gifts. And he graciously gives those for the glorification of Christ and the edification of the church. Now, again, as I said, Paul loved this church. It is amazing. He loved this church. He spent a year and a half there. He sent his best men in there. They have been pouring resources into this church. And he desires them to pursue love, as we see in chapter 14, verse 1. We'll see that in the future. To pursue love and to pursue spirituality, true Spirituality. In fact, he says that he, they would honestly and earnestly desire true spirituality. So he understood. He understood the function of the Spirit. It was far more than just human strength. This is a danger, right? When we serve the Lord, sometimes we, we kind of sola bootstrapped us ourselves, right? Well, I've got to go teach three-year-olds today. <laughs> you know, I've got to help out with the foot washing ministry i got to be a greeter today, and so i got to find that smile somewhere. Ooh. Is our ministries, yours and mine, fueled by the Spirit of God that loves Christ and loves the Word? I have to ask for help. I walk up those steps each Sunday, and I say, Oh, Lord, please allow your Spirit to speak. I can't do this without you. I say that when I study uh, I need his help, and, and, and it's just not in this, this gift, right? It's in all of the gifts. And see, Paul understands this. He wants them to desire these things. He wants the function of the Spirit to not be just human strength, but to allow this struggling church to be healed from their own infirmities, their own weaknesses that they keep bringing to the church, and let the Spirit of God lead this church. One of the evidences that where you see where the Spirit of God is not there is the loss of unity. People don't love one another. They're not unified in the direction of what God has set for them. And so we have seen this in this church all through this letter. They have lost their unity. They're not progressing towards the maturity, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, to the fullness of Christ that God has intended for the church. He knows the goal of the evil one, right? Paul knows that the evil one has, has desires and was working it very well in Corinth to interwine 
a worldly thinking, a paganistic thinking, and even a demonic thinking into this church. He uses experientialism, still using that today. Emotionalism, experientialism drives much of the prosperity gospel churches. And so in verse 2, two weeks ago, we saw the urgency that Paul was pushing them to expose the difference between a pagan experimentalism and the true working of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the letter, Paul has been describing just a stark difference between true Christians and the lost world. Remember when he stopped in and he worked on, uh, in chapter 11, the demonic behavior behind idolatry. And he, he hits that hard, helping them understand that those experiences suppress the truth of, of God's word. And so he knows that they've been led astray. We saw that in verse 2. You've been led astray by mute or dumb idols. They, they bring you into this experience that the devil is behind. And with that goes out the true gospel. It is not part of the ministry anymore. And, and we said this two weeks ago, and I want to reiterate this. Satan and his demons have one major overarching principle is to lead people away from Christ and his word. And they will dress themselves up like angels of light to do it. And they're very good at it. Very, very good at it. That's why books have come out named, and you might know this book, you know, Charismatic Chaos. There's so much chaos within the charismatic movements. It's built on experientialism. It's built on, on, on feelings and emotions and, and driving towards that individual and their gifts and what they can do and say and what, what the powers they have and so forth. And, and it just becomes chaotic and there's no unity. And we see this all the time and this was Satan's goal and we hit that uh, deeply in our last text. Well, the Bible says that we, are, we who are Christians are led by the Spirit of God. You have the spirit of God if you're a believer. <laughs> not the spirit of the world, not the spirit of Satan that leads to the fear of slavery. You have the spirit of God, and that brings us to unity. And we, we realize that the spirit is testifying, the Bible says in Romans 8, that we are his sons, we are his children. And he is our Abba Father. What sweet relationship. I was thinking about that verse as I heard you singing this morning in those opening songs, such great voices singing these truths. I said, oh, here's your, I said to the Lord, here's your sons, Abba Father, your sons and daughters singing to you. This is the mark of the spirit that worships the Lord. Well, the key to this passage as we work our way through this is there's a true, true misunderstanding of what lordship salvation is, what lordship of Jesus Christ is, and what Paul's going to do here in verse 3 as we jump into this now is he's going to show the errant views of Christ's lordship. And then he's going to give credit to the Holy Spirit and to the, to the Godhead for his true work in our lives. So let's look at some points here this morning. Number one, the spirit empowered, excuse me, the spirit, the spirit empowerment of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, let me read that again. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaks by the Spirit of God, no one who speaks by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Well, that therefore really means for this reason. So what Paul is saying here, because of your ignorance or being unaware, verse 1, he talked about that, and because you're tempted to confuse 
pagan and worldly rituals and experientialism, you're, you're tempted to confuse that with the true work of the Spirit of God, verse 2. I want, I want to make this statement to you. This is what he's saying, right? So in verse 3, he gives a test to understand the difference between counterfeit spirituality and the true work of the Spirit. And he does this through two benchmark statements that clarify the distinction between the pagan and the Christian. This is so important. And he uses these statements to draw out the difference. Now, A in your outline there, as I separate the verse apart here, says this, No one speaks by the Spirit of God, says Jesus is accursed. Now, that last word there is something to be looked at, and we'll start there, right? This word, cursed, it is the Greek word anathem. Many of you know that word. It means that you have come under, you've been delivered to the divine wrath of God. And so Paul says, no one can say this, Jesus is cursed. That does not come from the Spirit of God. And so the question we must ask is, where did this statement come from? Who in their right mind would say Jesus is cursed? Who would make a statement? And if this was done in the church, why was it approved? Why wasn't it admonished and disciplined? How could this happen in here? Well, doubtlessly it did happen in the church because Paul's addressing it, right? He, he knows it's happened. He's heard. There's been witnesses. This information got back to him, and he's now dealing with their lack of worship because these type of things are happening. Well, Several reasons that this could have happened. First, let me start with some reasons that I'm not sure these are the reasons, but I'm going to get to the one I think it is. But they, they have a role, right? First, there could have been great effects of Judaism within the church. Judaism had made its way around the world in many ways as the Jews spread out. Synagogues were built in all kinds of places. And we know that the Jews taught that Jesus was cursed because he was hung on a tree. And they go to Deuteronomy 21, 23, and there it says that anyone who's hung on a cross, hung on a tree, is cursed by God. And so because of that, and because Christ was crucified on the cross, they believed he was handed over to God to be cursed forever, anathemed under the judgment of God. And when Christians started proclaiming that uh, Jesus is Lord, that he, in the name of Jesus, when they proclaim that, the Jews would now call down curses upon Jesus. They still do that today. You have to understand that. They do not look at Jesus as God's son, the Messiah, the Savior. He hung on a tree, so he must be cursed, and that's how they handle it. In fact, it isn't hard to study this, and you begin to realize when the early church grew, Jewish leaders attempted to stop their followers who were coming by the droves to Christ. Read the first couple chapters of Acts, right? 3,000, 5,000, 4,000, mostly Jews coming to know the Lord. When that began to happen, the Jews, the Jewish leaders tried to stop them. And the local synagogue leaders instructed, Jews, uh, instructed their people that Jesus was cursed. And then they would go even farther. We've seen this even in, in a parallel in Acts chapter 9 with the, with the blind men. When you associated and became friends with Christians who said Jesus is Lord, they would disavow you from the, from the synagogues and put you out. And thus there was no way to the kingdom if you were put out of the synagogue. There was also growing persecution along those lines that Christians were compelled to denounce Jesus. 
they were compelled to say that Jesus was a curse. This came from both Jewish influence and Roman influence, and that Caesar was Lord, right? Now, as difficult as facts are, I'm not sure that's probably what was going on. That, that level of Judaistic pressure was probably going on in Corinth. So there's a second possibility. In the middle of the first century came a Gnosticism, right? And that began to take root. And they taught that the physical body of Jesus was evil, right? Matter's evil. They believed only in the spirit of things. All matter was sinful. And so they rejected Jesus in his incarnation. They rejected that he was ever here or that he could have, he could have saved the world by being fully man. They rejected the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they would curse the body of Christ, and the only thing they could confess was a spirit of Jesus that would be exalted. And so there was agnosticism starting to grow, although when we study the, the book of Corinthians in this era, agnosticism was still making its way in there. So I'll, it probably had some effects, but I'm not sure that was it. Here's where I land, and I think many other theologians landed on this. In this early church, the, the Christians were being gripped with experientialism. They are coming out of absolute pagan rituals, drug-induced rituals. When we study the church, the, the false church that was in Corinth, uh, they, they used drugs, they used gases that came up from the ground, they used all kinds of things that put themselves in a trance that caused them to speak in weird tongues, caused them to have visions, caused all kinds of things to happen. And they were... They were the spiritual people of the area. And so they would often break out into these euphoric excitements and they would say things contrary to the truth. That's where these people came out of. And this probably, doubtlessly, and most people as we study this book, say this is what happened. There were those who claimed to be Christians within the church. They lost control. They did not have self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And they would say things that were pagan, things that were not of God. It was pure, driven by enthusiasm at times. Would often overtake them and persuade them to say things that were untrue. And, and I, as I thought about this, I thought, well, may, maybe it was something like this. They, they said they were thinking about the wrath of God and his penal judgment on Jesus. And, and they would cry out, well, Jesus is cursed. Now, they failed to do the rest of the statement for me. See, the only way we could say and attach Deuteronomy 21-23 to Jesus to know that Jesus was cursed on our behalf and I do not deserve my salvation, our Lord took the full punishment of his Father and it fell upon him for my sake. He was cursed for me. But unfortunately, in their in, in, uh, experientialism and uh, uh, lack of self-control and their emotions, they would just make statements, Jesus is cursed. Well, how deceiving that would be, right? How inappropriate and confusing that would be when done with a lack of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. So it's spiritless comments that we're making, and Paul is addressing these things. Now, certainly a person not exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit did not speak by divine inspiration, but they prove that their lack of self-control in the emotionalism was not from God. Now, we've seen this happen in recent decades. You remember the Toronto blessing that broke out. There, they, 
they had this, they said it was the Spirit moving people to laugh. Do you remember this? Some of you remember this. And it didn't stay there. It moved into Holy Spirit barking. It moved into Holy Spirit vomiting. This is disgraceful, godless, spiritless. And see, these are the things that come from a poor teaching of how the gifts are given and how the gifts are handled. And so this happens in our day, doesn't it? But this statement, Jesus' curse, um, I think also shows the heresy that was beginning to grow within the church. Remember, man-centered theology is starting to come in, right? They're they're very tied, as we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2, into great oratorical perfection. They're also tied into worldly wisdom. They were big into wisdom, right? And so what that leads to is this man-centered theology that's dominating the teaching and Christ-centered theology, which Paul taught, is getting crowded out. And so with that comes poor language, things like Jesus is cursed without explanation, drawing attention to themselves. Look, it is quite possible that those who were in the church that may be moving this heresy along, they were no longer loyal to Jesus Christ and that salvation came through Christ alone. They began to teach Christ plus something. You go, how do you know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul tells them at the end of the letter, says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. See, Paul knows there's something going on. There's something Christ plus something going on in this church, and it's tripping them up. It's leading them astray. False teachings coming out of that. Heresies coming out of there. There's all kinds of possible even demonic behavior happening in some of these people's life, and he wants He wants them to know if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, you're accursed, right? In the second letter he wrote, inspired second letter, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 3-4, he says this, But I am afraid, this is Apostle Paul speaking to this church, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity, listen to this, impurity of devotion to Christ. See, the gospel is not enough for people. We got to have some kind of spiritual dog and pony show. We got to have spiritual cheerleaders and spiritual pulling rabbits out of a hat, some, some kind of wowism in order to captivate people. Let me tell you this. I am so captivated by the gospel, I'll keep preaching until he takes my breath away. (laughs) It's captivating, isn't it, that Christ would die for me? I mean, it captivates you. I I don't need all of that. It's glorious in and of itself, right? But this is what's going on. He goes on to say this. For if anyone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted. Now listen to this. You bear this beautifully. That's not a compliment right there. He says, you're taking in things that are lies from the pit of hell, and you're bearing them beautifully. Oh, look how well we put on that show. (laughs) It's a hard rebuke. And this is where the church is at. So In this first question, most likely, Paul wants to show this church that they've lost 
the unity of the doctrine of Christ. They've lost their unity and their membership because they lost the centrality of Christ. And they seem to be greatly affected by religion, behavior, and pagan uh, old ways that once held them captive. And he's warning them in these passages. Now, look at B here. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I love the balance here. This is inspiration, right? Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes this. There's great balance here to the second part of the statement. But together, you see these statements that you realize there's a great conflict, right? Jesus is cursed. Jesus is Lord. There's some conflict there, isn't there, right? And he's bringing this out here. And so this second statement involves this full confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it displays a relationship with him. He is my Lord. He's my master, my ruler. He's the one who has all authority of my life. It's what a statement that's being made here. Uh, Jesus is Lord is a statement of loyalty. I am loyal to my Lord and Savior. I will not listen to another. I will, I will carefully examine his word to know whether it's from the Spirit or it's from some man or woman or person or something else. See, you're loyal to the Word of God. You're loyal to the written Word. You're loyal to the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's adoration, isn't it? When we say Jesus is Lord, it's adoration. We adore you, Lord, ruler of my life, controller of every breath. Knower of every cell of my body. I adore you that you have such intimate relationship with me. It's adoration, isn't it? When we think of Jesus as Lord, we also think of submission. You've heard me say this a million times. We bow our knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We submit to him. His way, not ours. There's a difference in the church today, right? Churches are... are candoring, are, are doing everything they can to a man-centeredness, not to a Christ-centeredness. So we'll, we'll accept you, whatever you are, come as you are, right? Well, that's an okay statement, but when you come, you're going to hear the truth, and you're going to realize, come in as you are, ain't right. If I come as I are, <laughs> I are going to hell. <laughs> Isn't that true? He's our Lord, and we submit to him. There's one way to the Father, through Christ alone, not two, not three, not any other ways. It's singular through Christ alone, and we must know that and believe that. We come through the word alone. We don't come through man's wisdom and man's tricks and all the things. We don't come through that. We don't come through your family. We don't come through your heritage. We don't come through religion. We come to the Lord through Christ alone. We hold to this. There's a submission to that. There's conviction in it. He's Lord. It means he's what? Right. That means we're most likely wrong. <laughs> he's right. He's right on marriage. He's right on politics. He's right on everything. And so we submit to him and we have conviction in our life. Lord, what would Jesus do? <laughs> you don't just walk around and put the little bracelet on that one golfer had for a while, which I appreciate uh, what would Jesus do? You don't even put that on. You actually search the scriptures to find out what Jesus would do. 
I think that's a problem, right? People walk around, well, I'm just trying to figure out what Jesus did. It's right here. It's, it's not some wild ceremonies that get put on. Read your Bible. Be a student of the Word. It'll lead you right to the Lord Jesus. And look, Jesus as Lord is worshipful. Only people who truly worship the Lord. That means you set your side, yourself aside and you honor and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, certainly there was people who mindlessly mouth Jesus as Lord, uh, probably back then and even today, right? But when these words are generally spoken out of deep conviction, they demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit. I promise you, if you're not saved in here, you're struggling with some of this. But if you're saved in here, and even though you may be going through some sin struggles, because us believers do that, right? We're not perfect yet in, in our living it out standing. We have a perfect standing with the Father um, through Jesus Christ, but we're, we're a work in progress. We're being transformed day after day, time after time. The Lord reforming us into the image of his Son. Praise the Lord for that. But we realize that even when we say Jesus is Lord, we must believe that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't do that on our own strength. And look, these, this phrase has made its way into some of our greatest old creeds throughout Christianity. And you go, well, where'd they get it? From the Bible. John chapter 13, 13. Really easy to remember this. John 13, 13. Two thirteens, get it? Jesus says this. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I'm both. I have the words of God... I am the teacher, the teacher. That, that led him right back to the promise of Moses in Deuteronomy that said, there's one coming that will teach you. And then it, and then it has unfolded in the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm the Lord. I'm the one with all authority. In fact, I'm going to die for sinners who will put their faith in me alone. And the Father's going to raise me from the dead and he's going to give me everything. I'm Lord. What a statement. I'm master, I'm ruler, I'm authority over all things. In Philippians chapter 2, that great kenosis passage where Christ empties himself, right? Chapter 2, verse 8, being found in the appearance of as a man. That's what, how we see him, right? He comes fully man so he can, he can represent us and die for us so he can be killed, right? He humbled himself by becoming a, obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. That's lordship, right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is? Isn't that beautiful? Everything belongs to him, to the glory of the Father. Listen, at the time of salvation, the Jews that were converted from Judaism to followers of Christ, we see this in the book of Acts, they believed him to be Lord. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 38. People are coming to the Lord by the droves. Peter says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let it be known... These Jews are leaving behind Judaism. And here Peter says, the way you know you're saved is you've made him Lord, Master. That one that was crucified on the cross was God 
incarnate has a power over all things. He is the ruler. He also is the Messiah, and he's known as Jesus because he incarnate and gave, uh, took on flesh so he could die for us. Wow, there's a lot of doctrine in that little verse, isn't there? But that's what happens when you get converted, when God truly saves you. These are the things you believe. Verse 37, I've got to just read the fun part here. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Oh, why? Because all this time, the Jewish leaders were saying, he's accursed. That's why they were trying to kill him the whole time on, on this earth. They're pierced to the heart. They go, oh, no, we killed the Lord of glory. They're pierced to the heart. They understand their sin. They understand, finally, a need of a savior, not just a king. Jews never wanted a, a, a savior. They don't want a king. And they're pierced to the heart because they now know they need a savior. Isn't this beautiful? And then the apostles say to them, they say to the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, each of you. Be identified, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, it just says in there with the Jews, when the Gentiles are converted, they have to forsake all their pagan pasts and all their pledges of devotion to these idols, and they have to put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I love Acts 16, the Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas are arrested. They've already led Lydia to the Lord. There's a birth of a church in Philippi starting to happen. They get thrown in prison, beat mercilessly, right? They're put into prison. They're singing the gospel all night. God shakes the, the jail and opens up the gates, and the chains fall off, and the, uh, the, the guard of the prison, he pulls out his sword. He's about ready to kill himself. And Paul and Silas cry out, verse 28, with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the man calls for a light, and it rushes in, and he, trembling with fear, falls before Paul and Silas. And after he, was brought, after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, now I just have to, well, it's so fun to see these narratives, isn't it? <laughs> so how does he know to ask that question? One, he's heard them sing, them sing of salvation all night. Two, that's the work of the Spirit. You don't walk into a church like this and just go, well, I think I want to join this club. What do I have to say? Where do I have to sign? That's, that's not how you get saved. You get saved because the Spirit of God shows you you're lost. <laughs> right? It's only the lost that need to be saved. So you, 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 you realize you're lost. And, and so you, the Spirit motivates these questions we see over and over in the book of Acts. What must we do to be saved? The reply is precious, isn't it? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe he is everything he said he was. Believe he is God, Savior, man. He's, he has everything under his control. He knows you from the foundations of the world. He can draw you to himself. You put your faith in this almighty one called the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we know that all believers need this, right? Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses. Resulting in salvation, you confess, Jesus, your Lord, I'm a sinner, I need you. 
It's not that complicated, is it? But it's real complicated if you're not saved because you try to get yourself saved. He goes, okay, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to go to church every week. And they're always asking for money, so maybe I'll give some of that. And I'll, I'll, I'll stop chewing and dancing and doing all that, whatever. Well, you know, you made all kinds of lists, right? When I grew up, you, those were just, you know, you were a Christian if you didn't do those things. No, no. You confess that he's Lord. And you're a sinner and you need him. All true believers claim that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, right? You get to the end of the book of Revelations, you start to see some marvelous statements about our Lord. Revelation chapter 17, 14. These will rage war against the Lamb. Right? These are all the unredeemed. Satan leads them against the Lamb. The Lamb will overcome them. Not a problem with him. Because he is Lord of lords. <laughs> That's why. How is he going to beat the nations and Satan and all the charges that come at him? How is he going to do that? Well, he's Lord. He's Lord. Right? Isn't it hard to study end times theology and he calls... He calls the, the vultures. Now, come on, I got a feast for you. He's Lord. He has control of all that stuff, right? Revelation 16, 19. And on his robes and on his thigh, he has written what? King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who he is. Now, Jesus warns us. Look, brothers and sisters, this is very important. Jesus warns us that there's going to be many who use his name, but really don't believe him. I want you to go to this passage, uh, passage Matthew chapter 7. You see how I'm having a hard time getting very far in this passage? I'm going to get there. Bear with me. But you've got to look at this passage. See, those who claim they have great religious experiences, they even attempt great things in the name of Jesus, but they're counterfeiters. They're counterfeit. What's counterfeit? Something that looks really real, but it ain't. Look at chapter 7, 21 through 23. Now, this is right in the heart of the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher, right? And there's a lot of wonderful things in this, but it is amazing that this makes its way into this passage. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, you want to know who goes? Who, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Well, what's the will of the Father? Give more money. Go to church more often. Make sure you live right. That's not the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that you come to him through his Son alone. That is the will of the Father, that you glorify Christ in salvation in life. That's the will of the Father. But notice what happens here. Many... You should mark that. Many will say to me on that day, this is the final day, this is judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Uh-oh. That sounds like the American church that's filtering its way around the world. I mean, this is what they're into. I told you about the story of the guy they were trying to raise from the dead and his cell phone went off in his pocket. And he answered it. All in the name of Jesus, right? All in this performance going on. He says, look, many 
will say this. And, and man, can you imagine these next words in verse 23? And then I will whisper. Doesn't say that, does it? I will declare to them, I never knew you. That word know is intimate. It's the same word we have where Joseph did not know Mary until she had the child. This is a term of intimacy. I do not have a spiritually intimate relationship with you. Depart from me. You tried to come through me through all that stuff. It was deception. I don't know you. I have another reservation for you. And it's due. Notice that he equates, and this is staggering, right? All this prosperity gospel and all these prophesies and words from God and claiming control over the demon world and doing miracles and all these things. And look, brothers and sisters, I believe in miracles as much as anybody else. I've watched God heal people. He didn't use me. He didn't use a man. He didn't use anybody. He may have even used doctors, but he still heals people. We still believe in miracles, right? We have a miraculous God. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when this is focused in on a man-centered theology. But notice he says lawlessness. He connects lawlessness to prophecies, casting out demons, and miracles. Why does he say that? Because it's pagan. It's not of him. And, and, and brothers and sisters, one of the reasons we're slowing ourselves way down in this is because we are battling this in our own families, right? Many of you have come and talked to me and said, hey, I have my son or a sister or his brother or somebody's caught up in this stuff. And man, they just are violent with me over this stuff. It's, it's, it's so hard. We're slowing down so we understand what's going on so we can execute the pure gospel of Christ without tripping up in these things. Look, only those who are filled with the Holy Spirit find the Father's approval. These people aren't going to find it through all the magic shows. You only find it through Jesus Christ, and that's the Father's will. Salvation only comes through that. And when you are saved, brothers and sisters, we know this, and if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, one of the benefits of salvation through Christ alone is he places his own spirit permanently in you. And you don't have to try to go get it, try to do something to attain it, to be, to be blessed a second time of some way. God gifts it to you. He never wants you to be lost. He wants to have this intimate relationship with you, so he puts his own spirit in you, so you're marked. You, you belong to him. Now, we can quench it, right? First Thessalonians 5, 18, somewhere around. We can quench it. It means we can... We can allow sin and not confess that and not allow him to have freedom, right? We all do that. Time's time, don't we? Not even fun, is it? You lose your joy. You lose direction. You lose all kinds of things, right? Guidance. But look, he gifts us the Holy Spirit. And it comes to those who truly acknowledge Jesus as Lord, understands that Jesus is fully God, that we now obey him because there's a new desire within our heart. The Spirit's given us desire for the things of God. There's a conviction by him now. All other variants are false. And all they do, a false variant will work its way into some false teaching that is counterfeit. It looks like Christ. It looks like the church, but it is not. And it's not hard to find your way through there. And so a good question as I end this point. 
Is your spiritual, spirituality rooted in the gospel of the lordship of Jesus Christ or is it rooted in tradition or experiences? Man, that's a good question. Can you answer that? My true salvation, my spirituality, what I have, the person that God has made me in, is it rooted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus given the Spirit to expose that to me, that he has saved me, or is it in tradition or experiences? Because some days, you know what? We don't feel very saved, do we? Let sin run rampant. We're suffering in some way or another. Sometimes we feel that way. But we come back down to the truth. Who saved us? Is it God? Is it through his plan? Is it through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Is there something I did? These are serious truths. And so the true Holy Spirit-driven spirituality desires to love God, to love our Savior with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and we desire daily to die to self. And that's what the Corinth church wasn't doing. They wanted the, they wanted the glory for themselves. And that's what's happening in so many churches. Point two, and we got to put the hammer down here. Different gifts, but divinely and diversely given for the common good. So if we understand that verse three, these first three verses are examining the spirituality of the Corinth church and us as well, then the next four verses here begin to help us understand the origination of the gifts and that they come from a triune God. And so, though the gifts are diverse, and we're going to get into this in coming weeks, right? Next week, we're going to get into the diversity of the gifts, and we're going to be given these amazing illustrations, real, real uh, visual illustrations of how these gifts work. But we understand that they come from a triune God. And God is the gift giver of them. So 1 Corinthians 12 is highlighting now, it's going to move into the distinguishable diversity of the gifts given by the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the Trinity. Look at verse 4. As soon as I get back there. Now, there are, there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit. Now, notice in verse 4, now there's a focus on godly spiritual gifts only. He's, he's now leaving the discussion of the paganism and world, Right? He's now focusing on gifts, and he uses this word variety, which teaches us that the Spirit, he's breaking the mold, and he's dispensing spiritual gifts in a real diverse way. I love this, right? And these gifts will not only be different in each person, but they'll have various applications. We'll see that particularly in chapter, uh, uh, verses 8 through 10, and then, and then the example to follow. But the word gift is an interesting word. It is charismaton here. Um, it, the root word is charis, is the word we get for grace. And so I think it's even proper to say that the Spirit gives gifts of grace, right? These are grace gifts. That means they're completely unearned, they're unmerited, um, they're from the Spirit of God, and they're for the members of the church. And I love to think about these gifts that way. Your gift of how you serve the Lord, or gifts, because it's quite possibly some of you have multiple gifts. Everyone has a gift. We know it. The Bible's going to tell us that multiple times. You have a gift. You're just not using it. Sorry to get a little personal with you. But you have a gift. But when you start thinking about them as a grace gift, you go, oh, wow. He's given me something I don't deserve. Right? And so now I serve the Lord with humbleness because the gift he's given me 
And there's multitude of them, and he's only going to mention several of them in this passage, but Romans chapter 12 mentions more, 1 Peter chapter 4 mentions more. There's multitudes of gifts given, but they're given as a gift of grace, and so they're undeserved and unmerited. It's such an important thing to understand that. It really humbles you, right? You go down and teach three-year-olds, that takes a gift. I don't have it. But somebody's got to have it, right? Because we got three-year-olds down there. Somebody's got to have that gift. And you at least better go down there and see if you have it or not, right? Somebody has the gift to greet people and make people feel welcome. Somebody has to have the gift of counseling and working through difficult situations, showing compassion. So you gotta have, there's all kinds of these gifts out there. But you can't sit on your hands and say, well, I'll just let somebody else do it. These are grace gifts, right? But notice that the, this diversity of grace gifts are unifying the gifts unify, right? There's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit here. And next week we'll look at those diversity here, but it's the same spirit doing these. these. And this is the source that was the problem in Corinth. They didn't recognize where these gifts were coming. And so they were taking these gifts and they were exalting themselves. And they were causing a, a massive disunity within the body. God's not being glorified. The grace gifts are abused. And there's division because of pride and arrogance and factions. But Paul clearly wants these Corinthians, and the Bible wants us to understand that the reason there is division was not because of the Spirit of God. It's because of their jealous schisms, right? Who they're following, and I want to I speak in this way, right? Paul, and we'll see in chapter 14, Paul says, can you at least get in line? I mean, when you study this, you go, they're so into themselves, they can't get in line. This is how bad it goes when we don't realize that God has given us gifts for his glory. See, one of the things you realize is the Spirit does not fight against the Trinity. Notice in these verses, the same Spirit, verse 4, the same Lord, verse 5, the same God, verse 6. Complete unity in this. And this is where the Corinthians found themselves in complete disunity. Look at verse 5. And there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. I love this term here because it highlights that spiritual gifts are meant not only to bring glory to God, but to be used in ministry to one another. This word ministry, it's an interesting word. Diakon, diakon is the word. We get diaconate, the word for deacons from it, and it means to serve one of one, serve someone, right? We call it the ministry of mercy, Right? They serve the body of Christ. That's what deacons do. There's a ministry to the body of Christ. It's merciful. It's ministry. It's serving. And so the overarching truth that the Spirit is giving these gifts are to bring God glory and to minister to serve one another. If you have a gift, which you do have if you're a Christian, are you serving one another with it? If not, you have quenched the Spirit of God. If you're not doing anything, if you're just merely a good sermon listener and you don't do anything with what God has given you, you don't use what he's given you, you're quenching the work of the Spirit. I know that's a little convicting and maybe hard to hear. Because you go, oh, you know, Scott, you just don't know the problems I have. You don't know what's going on. I imagine, like me, you've got some issues going on, right? We live in a fallen world. But do you want joy? Do you want love and peace and patience and kindness? You want the fruit of the Spirit? Don't quench Him. 
And the way, one of the ways is we allow the Spirit to lead us into these ministries and serve one another, and we find these things. Notice there's variety of ministries, but the same Lord. These, this is true, and so there's this predominant principles taught throughout these chapters because that was the problem. They didn't, they, these were not spirit gifts. They were natural gifts, and it, it resulted in disunity. Paul's trying to show if they're of the Spirit, you're going to be together. You're going to glorify Christ and love one another. Notice that, again, that Paul turns to the unity of the Trinity again here. Same Spirit, same Lord, same God, all four through six. But that's not what they were doing. Look at verse six. The variety of gifts, excuse me, the variety of effects. Your Bible might say activities, results. I think I saw working and operations and different um, uh, It's an interesting word. Uh, Energame is the word. We get our word energy from this. And I love this. This really gets me excited. Um, I think this word highlights the miraculous power that God uses through us. I, 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 he does that. L- listen, let me give you an example. If you're a Publix and you share the gospel with somebody, that is miraculous power. You know why? Because you deserve the hell that you're trying to save them from. So God miraculously changed our life one man said it this way, we're cracked pots with the glory of Christ shining through the cracks. That's miraculous, right? First of all, it's miraculous that I'm saved. Secondly, I'm given this miraculous message to this person who's hell bound for all I know, right? That's a miracle. And it's a miracle that I could say that because I once was doomed, but now my eternal direction has been changed by the grace of God. And so there's a miraculous aspect of what we do when we share the gospel. And this is why he uses this word here. It's, it has a miraculous effects. One of the things that elders and I pray for here before we come in is that God would use the worship and the preaching and the fellowship of the saints to do miraculous work in the body of Christ at Riverbend. And and, and let me just sum this up and we'll start with verse 7 next week. Anytime, I want you to understand, not just the preacher, but any one of you who speak truth from the word of God to somebody else it has miraculous effects. The word of God does not return what? That's amazing. And so we do this, and there's, so there's miraculous power of life-changing truth of the word of God, and it's sheer energy of the power of God, and you can see how this can get abused, right? People can want this. Simon the magician, he wanted to pay for it, right? He was willing to give money to get this thing, man. And he gets condemned for that. You can see why the charismatic movement gets so much into this because it, it's amazing when rabbits come out of a hat. But notice it's the same God. Time and time again, he keeps using this argument, you can't divide the Trinity. Why are you divided? God's never in conflict with himself. He's always unified, Father, Son, Spirit. He's always does everything to glorify himself and unify the church, and that is the goal. And so all of God's truth, all of God's grace-given gifts, all of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all designed to bring us into unity, to bring us into maturity, to bring us into the full statue and nature of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, are you using your gift? If you're saved, that means you have the Spirit. 
That means he gave you a gift or gifts. Something to evaluate, something to think on. We're going to work hard on this, right? This is not just for us to say, oh, there's a bunch of wild churches out there. This is to help us live for Jesus. Let's pray and sing a song. Father, thank you for this time together. Um, This is a fascinating passage, Lord. It has been a passage of much abuse through the years. In fact, even as Paul wrote this, it was because of abuse. They were abusing the true work of the Spirit. They were self-centered and self-glorifying. In essence, Lord, they and many today even rob or attempt to rob the glory of God. Lord, that's not the true nature of the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to salvation. He regenerates us, makes us new creatures. All things, old things have passed away. All has become new, and now we are new. We, we have a special gift given to us to bring glory to God and to unify Christians and unify the church. And so, Lord, as we work through this, please prick our hearts, Lord, each and every one of us. Maybe those of us who think we're using our gift regularly, we should reevaluate it. Are we using it for your glory? Is there another gift that we should be uh, excelling in as well, Lord? But Father, for maybe those who have maybe thought that they were giftless or unneeded, I pray that you would encourage them and cause them to have a desire to know the gift that God has given them, to see needs and meet them, and thus find out how God will use them in their giftedness, Lord. Father, thanks for this message. May you hear us sing a last song to you, a sweet praise before we go out and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.